0: Tonight, I'd like to talk on the subject of working with fear. And I, I really enjoy this theme, even though it sounds like it could be a little um, heavy because as much as anything, I think this topic really shows the liberating power of the Dharma. And so by extension, in learning to work with fear, we also learn to work with a lot of other difficult emotions. And not only does the Dharma offer the possibility, the long-term promise of uprooting these forces from the mind, but it also shows a step-by-step way that we just continue to reduce and weaken them over time in ways that bring a lot of uh, relief and happiness into our lives. So I hope that um, in exploring this theme together this evening, some of that will we'll come across. Fear is one of our deepest uh, conditionings. It goes way, way back in the evolutionary timeframe. It's one of the most powerful forces at work in our hearts and minds. When it's present, it feels like a kind of cloud. You know, a heavy cloud has settled over us and it blocks the sunlight from getting in and reaching us and letting the heart feel uh, beautiful and spacious. And when the fear descends, it really limits our ability to enjoy the, the beautiful things of life and to open in the way that we're capable of opening in. There's an author and therapist named Gerald Jampolsky. I like the title of his most famous book, it's called Love is Letting Go of Fear. And that's a strong message that when we let go of fear, the quality of love is spontaneously there. It's not that we have to build it up little by little, but when this cloud lifts, love comes through uh, very naturally. Fear can be um, a very strong force in our life. At times it can be overwhelming, Emotionally, it can have a strong impact in the body. We're learning how much of uh, stress, uh, how much of illness is related to a stress level, a form of fear in our life. And it can lead to a lot of unskillful choices as we act in the world and live. And then when you think about kind of the big picture of human culture, it just seems like fear has haunted our whole development as a species, you know, from a long time ago. Fear has been like a specter over the evolution of the human race, and you can just feel the um, over over thousands and probably millions of years this worry that humans have had that there's not going to be enough food, that there's not going to be enough land, that there's not going to be Uh, enough warmth, Um, there's not going to be shelter, there's not going to be safety. And in modern terms, that all kind of gets crystallized in there's not going to be enough money. So this fear of lack that we have struggled with and has led to countless conflicts and wars and, and suffering. So in meditation, we can find a lot of freedom in relationship to fear in general and to our individual specific fears in particular. The long-term promise of the Dharma is that this force can be uprooted from our hearts and minds, that it is possible to live without the influence of fear. That's a long-term aim. It might not happen in this retreat. So we need to be patient and set our aim accordingly, but it really is possible in one retreat to significantly change our relationship to fear. And the gist of it will be not getting rid of it but becoming more and more comfortable with it so that when it arises, we're not so disturbed by it. We find a greater and greater ability to accept and be with the fear. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what the emotion is and how it plays out, what its role is in the psyche When you think about our basic existential situation as human beings and actually all sentient beings, you see it in the animal world uh, as well. The basic situation is that we have a shifting mix of experience, which is sometimes pleasant and sometimes painful. It's mostly unpredictable and it's largely out of our control. I imagine you're seeing this in your day-to-day experiences, yogis, right? This is one of the most striking features of retreat. We have a concentrated sitting and the next sitting is all over the map. We have a lot of body pain. We get up and walk and it totally goes away. We have one day where we feel very open and uh, enjoying the beauty of nature and another day where we're very contracted and worried or sad or angry about something. And these different experiences just seem to sweep through us, not of our choosing and not in our control. So this is one of the main things that we learn as yogis. Life is unpredictable, practice is unpredictable, and above all, we find a growing equanimity in being with all those changing situations. But that's because the Dharma provides us some understanding But at the root of sentient life is this unpredictability and a sense in the middle of it of our insecurity and vulnerability. Anything can happen to us at any time. This is so fundamental to our life, this changing mix of pleasure and pain. And this is why the uh, quality of feeling tone or Vedana is so important that it's the second foundation of mindfulness because around Vedana our, our emotions live, let's put it that way. So we're constantly being hit by this contact, alternately pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in all the, the sense fears. I think, I think fear has to be understood as one response to that shifting mix of pleasure and pain. We've talked quite a bit about the, the three what are called kileses um, the three roots of the unwholesome in the heart and mind, greed, aversion, and delusion. And these can all be understood as ways to relate to this unpredictable mixture. So where fear fits in to this, in my understanding, is under aversion. Basically desire is for the pleasant, the, uh, Tendency of aversion manifests in two ways, one uh, to avoid the unpleasant. One is anger, which pushes out against the unpleasant. The other way is fear, which tends to draw back from the unpleasant. But they are both ways of trying to relate to the unpleasant or painful in life. We We can see that the way these are born in the psyche and continue Are strategies for dealing with this mix of pleasure and pain. The greedy temperament seeks to resolve this dilemma by constantly drawing in pleasure. Let's just keep the pleasant coming moment after moment without interruption, and that will be the strategy for happiness. And you probably know people who live like this, right? We all have known friends. The addictive personality comes out of this tendency of mind. Aversion is a strategy that seeks to find security by keeping the unpleasant away, pushing it away through uh, anger or aggression, retreating from it through fear. And delusion has a strategy of, oh, well, let's not feel it. It's impacting us, let's withdraw somewhat so it's not touching us so closely. And I hope you got some of the sense of that from Andrea's talk last night. So all of these uh, kilesas are volitional in nature and they enact a fundamental strategy of interacting with the world. And in Buddhist psychology, personality types are described along these three lines. Those with a greedy temperament are driven more by the factor of greed than the other two, those of an aversive temperament are driven more by that force and those of a deluded temperament driven more by the force of delusion. Now we all have all three, but it's very interesting as you look in your own psychology and you look at your friends, I bet you can tell for most people which of these three is predominant um, in their lives. And in, in classical Buddhist psychology, it's a way of understanding ourselves and others. So what fear does is it tries to protect us by projecting into the future some painful experience, hoping that by that projection we can find a strategy to avoid it. So fear is is future-related. I think that's the interesting thing to note here. It's also closely tied to desire because... um, there's a desire that we won't experience that painful experience. And then when desire creates the hope for a pleasant experience, there's also the fear that we won't get it. So fear and desire are kind of intermingled. it's interesting when the Tibetans uh, sum up the sort of the the strategy of samsara, they will often talk about it as hope and fear. Almost as one word, hope and fear. (laughs) You know, it's kind of what governs us. The search for the pleasant, the avoidance of the unpleasant. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, we often want to give up fear, but we don't always want to give up wanting. Have you noticed that? Desires are kind of entertaining and soothing and oriented toward the pleasurable. They're not often felt as suffering. But... The fact is, pursuing desire always involves some degree of fear also. So, we can't really be free from one without being free from the other. In fact, when you look at your experience of life, which is more fundamental for you, desire or fear? In other words, as we grow up into adulthood and kind of realize what life is presenting, Are we mostly insecure and want pleasant experiences to soothe that insecurity? In other words, is fear kind of the primary motivator? Or are we mostly searching for pleasure and then fear comes about because we can't always find it? Which came first? Wanting or fear? So in the Buddhist statement of the second noble truth, when he described the cause of suffering as being craving. He used this phrase, seeking delight, now here and now there. So he was putting the emphasis, the primary emphasis on the desire force. So that's one man's opinion. (laughs) But for someone who is um, psychologically more driven by fear, fear seems like the obvious predominating force in life and one can see it in, in many people as well. In fact, I'd say for a fear type, it seems like a very reasonable response to an unpredictable world. You never know what's going to happen. Anything can happen at any time. Example. A friend of ours was vacationing in Southern India and was staying with his girlfriend in a little uh, cabin on, on the beach. And he was out one morning by himself, just kind of enjoying the beauty of the waves rolling in and the warm sand under his feet, and maybe doing a little bit of movement exercise on the beach, kind of welcoming the morning and feeling the energy of the ocean, the sun, the earth, very pleasant. And as he was standing there, a big wave rolled in. And he watched it come, and he watched it go back out, and he thought, that is weird because the wave went so far out that it exposed a lot of the ocean bottom, which had not been exposed, you know, earlier in the day. And he thought, this is not, this is not right. So he went into the cabin, woke up his partner who was still asleep, pulled her out and they both hopped up on a little concrete wall that was next to a palm tree. And he said, I think we need to make ourselves safe. So they hopped up on the wall. He hung on to the palm tree and she hung on to him. And then the next wave came in. The date was December 26, 2004. And this was that huge tsunami that killed so many people and destroyed so many homes and hotels and villages all through India and Burma and Thailand and Indonesia. So, the big wave came in, and they were hit by it, but because he was hanging on to the tree and she to him, they weren't swept out. So, they survived, you know, the big wave went back out. It ruined a lot of other things, but, but they were okay. Peaceful morning, right? Beautiful beach. Anything can happen at any time. Who wouldn't be afraid living in a world like this? <laughs> So um, it's as though we we try to imagine all the things that can go wrong so that we can uh, hopefully prevent some of them happening. Well this reminds me of the joke which you may have heard. There was a patient seeing a therapist in in New York and uh, the therapist noticed that this patient had a habit of snapping his fingers rather frequently. And so after a while, you know, the therapist says, why are you snapping your fingers like that? And he said, oh, it's to keep the elephants away. And the therapist said, but there are no elephants in Manhattan. And the patient goes, yeah, it works, doesn't it? (laughs) So for the worry type, the fact that we keep thinking of all these things that could go wrong and they don't go wrong proves how effective our thinking is. (laughs) It's really very useful to worry, you know, because it helps keep those things away. But what we don't look at when we worry like that is the impact it has on the body and mind right now. We don't realize that we are really tormenting ourselves with fearful thoughts and images. And imagining all the things that can go wrong, we're constantly evoking anxiety, fear, worry, dread, and that creates a stress in the body and mind that's experienced here and now. But we don't tend to notice it because we're thinking about making the future safe. So from a Dharma point of view, uh, the reflection is the uncertainty in life is real. The unpredictability is real. Anything can happen at any time, that is true. But the question is, do we need to meet the moment with fear? Is the fear really necessary or is it not? And this is one of the uh, opportunities for great opening and understanding. When we start to understand that our mental state doesn't have to follow either our habits or outside conditions. That we find through meditation more and more uh, choice and freedom in regard to our state of mind. And right effort is basically keeping the mind in a wholesome place. We find more and more ability to have the mind be free from fear regardless of the outer situation. Sometimes it just becomes apparent how absurd the response of fear is. In um, the early 1980s, I I did a number of retreats in England. And I was there one summer, it was kind of early summer, probably June timeframe. And it just so happened at this uh, point in my life, fear was coming up a lot. I went through a couple of years where fear was coming up strongly. I'll say more about that later. But a lot of fear was coming up in my meditations. And on this particular occasion, I was doing standing meditation. I was out in the back garden of the retreat center. This is a precursor to Gaia House, for those of you who know the English scene a little bit. Um, I was doing standing meditation and uh, it was after tea, sort of early evening, under a tree, and my eyes were closed. I was standing and the fear was coming up quite strongly. And I was just, you know, feeling it in my body and feeling it in my mind and feeling how unpleasant it was, this fearful response to life. And so, for some reason, maybe to interrupt it, I opened my eyes and I just, I looked around. So it was one of those really soft summer nights in England. It's so beautiful. It's a little bit warm. The air has a little humidity. It just feels like it's settling on you like a gentle wrap. The sun was going down, so it was already uh, in that golden light stage. I was standing on a lush green grass that was illuminated by the golden setting sun. And I was standing beside a tree that was flowering. It was probably a fruit tree, you know, flowering in the very late spring, early summer. And the flower, you know, white flowers were beautiful in my face. So it was just this idyllic scene that I woke up to. And my thought was, wow, it's really a scary world, isn't it? (laughs) The contrast between my mind state, like what I was imagining, and the actual situation I was in, was so stark. I saw this state of mind had nothing to do with the reality of the present moment. And it just, you know, it made me laugh at the silliness of that habit, the uselessness of that, of that habit. The emotion was real, so I'm not trying to discount anybody's emotions. It was something I needed to live with and practice with, but it wasn't related to reality. It was just an old habit. So, as we look into this quality of fear, it's helpful to look at uh, what causes it. One of the... Ad- pieces of advice in the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta is understand uh, what causes the hindrances to arise and what causes them to, to pass away. So we want to understand why fear comes. And one of the main sources of fear was put uh, really clearly by Krishnamurti, J. Krishnamurti, the Indian philosopher, when he said very succinctly, thought breeds fear. Thought breeds fear. When we think about all the things that could go wrong, we generate a sense of fear. This is from Mark Twain. I am an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. (laughs) And you may have heard the story. There's a, there's a Zen artist, you know, monk generally, and he had painted on a scroll this big, bold picture of a tiger, you know, sweeping brushstrokes in black on white paper and really giving the tiger a lot of vitality and fierceness and fangs and claws. And he stepped back from the painting and he goes, ah! <laughs> he was scared of the image he had painted. The tiger seemed so lifelike to him. So this is kind of what we do Um, We scare ourselves with our thoughts and with our images. We make up frightening situations in our head that are just mental projections. And then we recoil from them in fear. What happens if we just don't fabricate those thoughts and images? What's the state of mind then? This is an interesting question generally. What is your state of mind when you're not fabricating thoughts and projections? Take a look and see. I think that there's a natural peace in the mind. When we're not stirring it up, the mind tends to be tranquil. So there's this kind of natural way of being, which is peaceful and relaxed. And then we keep stirring the waves by our imaginings and projections. So once we find that we can access this natural state of peace, it gives us a lot of confidence. We find it through meditation. When we stop stirring up the mind, it settles by itself and we can trust in that. That becomes a real refuge for us. So some of the ways we stir up the mind, some of the things we stir it up about, of course, a big one is death. There is a fear of death that's common to all animals and common to all humans who haven't uh, fully walked a spiritual path. It's a very primal uh, relationship to life. We are, by and large, from birth, very attached to this body, It's our most precious possession, our body and this life. And that's why it is so impressive when you find people who put their life on the line for a cause. You know, Martin Luther King predicted that he would be killed before he was killed. Um, Environmental activists are often targets for the violence and hatred of others. Um, there's someone I hadn't uh, known about and at a time of his death, but I read about recently. Chico Mendes was uh, an activist, an environmental activist in Brazil. He was born as a son of a rubber tapper. Brazil had lots and lots of natural rubber trees back in the 40s and 50s. So he was born into that era, his father was a rubber tapper, and at the age of nine, he began working as a rubber tapper. And as he grew up, he came to feel that the owners of the plantations were not really caring, caring for the workers or for the land. So he formed a trade union to provide better conditions for the workers. And he started organizing uh, environmentalist groups to protect the land, uh, something that he, he wanted to build as extractive reserves so that they would be preserved in some way, but unfortunately um, this threatened the ranching interests around the area where he was working and living. And he was eventually assassinated by the son of a cattle rancher in 1988. But he, he knew that, he had predicted that he wouldn't live to see the next Christmas and he was killed in that, in that year. He didn't step down from his work. Kept doing his work even in the face of, of mortal danger. Uh, you may also know the story of Diane Fossey. She was an American zoologist who worked to protect the mountain gorillas in Rwanda in Africa. And she, she wrote the book, Gorillas in the Mist, which was then made into a movie. So her life was on the line uh, over and over in working to protect these creatures. And she was killed uh, in 1985, probably by a poacher. They never actually found the person, but most likely by a poacher who made a lot of money from killing the gorillas and selling their, uh, their bodies. So it's amazing when people will overcome that fear of death to stand up for w- what they believe, the justice, the environment, each other. It's kind of interesting. I, I, I tend to think that the fear of death is kind of the number one fear, but a poll was taken a while ago, and fear of death only came out as number four. Number one on the list was fear of public speaking. That's kind of interesting. You know, it definitely can bring up more immediate anxiety. Um, so Ajahn Amro, who's a British monk, he's now the abbot of Amravati, gave a talk with a, a great title, why public speaking is more terrifying than worldwide nuclear destruction. <laughs> it seems kind of true, but I don't know why that is. So we all, until we investigate it and grow beyond it, have this, this fear of death. And of course, it's easy to understand, you know, there can be pain and uh, illness, there can be pain in dying. But there's another component of it that's kind of irrational, isn't it? It's like there's some fear of this stream of experience coming to an end. Why should we care? It's like suppose you went to sleep tonight and you just didn't wake up in the morning. Would that be a problem for you? (laughs) It isn't really, is it? It might be a big problem for other people. But your stream of experience in this form has ended. And yet we have a real resistance to that. So the Buddha pointed out actually there's a very deep-rooted cause for that, which is that we have a very deep desire for existence. It's one of the three forms of craving that he pointed to in the Second Noble Truth. We want to exist We want to have a body with senses so that we're having contact, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings. I'm not sure where that springs from, but it's very deep rooted in us. And it's that, to a large extent, that leads to the fear of dying. We don't want this stream of experience to come to an end, even though it's not always that satisfactory. Still, we hold on to it. But the Buddha said that it's not necessary that we fear death. At a certain point in spiritual life, one doesn't need to fear death. And he basically said there are four conditions for that to be true. If you're not too attached to the body, you're not too attached to sense pleasures, you haven't done a lot of unwholesome actions, and you have faith in the Dharma. He said, if these four things apply to you, you don't have to be afraid of death. So, I mean, this is a high bar, right? It's not immediately available maybe, but it's possible. This is not arahantship. This is something that we can come to in this life, to come to that degree of settledness in the Dharma, Emphasis on the wholesome, emphasis on non-attachment. This is possible for us. And so it's possible to face that um, possibility of one's own death without uh, deep fear. And then in the, in the maturing, the real maturing of the spiritual life, according to the text, it's possible to go beyond that altogether. There's this wonderful... Uh, story from the Theragata, verses of the elder monks at the time of the Buddha <coughs> involving an arahant, a fully awakened being named Adimuta. So Adimuta was wandering in the forest and he was captured by a group of bandits. And the bandits had their own religious practice and they needed a human to sacrifice to their gods. And Adimuta was the human that they found that they could sacrifice. So, I think you get from this story, life was pretty wild at the time of the Buddha. Indian society was not like this completely lawful, cooled-out place, but monks could take their lives in their hands by wandering through the forest. So, the bandits captured Adimuta. they told him that they were going to sacrifice him to their gods, and Adimuta was unmoved wasn't afraid, didn't show any unease, certainly didn't manifest any terror. Okay. <laughs> and the bandits couldn't believe it. It really, it really threw them. They hadn't seen anything like this before. So the bandit chief says to him, why, why are you not showing any fear? In, in face of this. And then Ad, Adi Muta gave this little verse, which is the verse that is in the taragata the old text. And he's, what he said is, there is no mental pain to one with no expectations. All fears have been transcended by one whose fetters are extinct. No mental pain to one with no expectations. Even the expectation that we will live another minute is an expectation. But he was so thoroughly in the present, he had no expectation about the future. So all fears have been transcended by such a one. We can be afraid of other people. Sally mentioned in a talk the other night that um, it was only about 7,500 years ago that you could run into a stranger and expect that one of you would need to kill the other before you were killed. That's not very long ago. So this fear of others lingers as a uh, residue, psychological residue of of our evolution. This is from Martin Luther King. People fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. So we see this playing out across the world in the distrust between nations. We see it playing out within our own society because different races and ethnic groups have been segregated for so long. We don't know each other very well. We haven't built those bonds of trust and familiarity. That all needs to break down so that we can have a sense of shared trust and safety with one another. There's a fear of physical pain. You know, the um, sawing that's been happening the last week on making the deck outside the meditation hall reminded me of nothing so much as being in a dental chair. And so when it was going on, I would just sort of notice this aversion. And <laughs> Reminding me of drilling in the the chair. We're afraid of physical pain. And we find that often as yogis here. Sitting for 45 minutes to an hour or longer, being still, not moving the body, discomfort often comes. It's a fact of yogi life. Sometimes it's going to hurt. And sometimes we develop a resistance to sitting because of that physical pain, not wanting to feel it or endure it. And so I was, ex- I, you know, I just got to exploring this and very interested in it. At one point in my, in my practice life, I, actually I was practicing in Thailand at the time, and I would have pain in this afternoon sitting kind of every day. And one day I just, I got up from the sitting. The pain was entirely not there once I got up and started walking. And I thought, well, why should I worry about it? It didn't, it didn't really hurt hurt me or damage me in any lasting way. There's some discomfort for a period of time. And I just saw it's just sensations. There's really nothing to fear in that. And that had really helped me get much more comfortable with having physical pain in my sittings. I saw it didn't damage me. I got up and it was as though it had never happened. There's a fear of emotional pain. And in a similar way, once we start to open to emotions, we see that they come, they pass through us and they're gone. And we'll come back to this point about fear, that we don't have to fear our emotions either because once we learn how to open and let them be, they all pass through. There's a fear of particular events you know, obviously a fear of future events. And this is kind of interesting. I like what the Dalai Lama said. He said, there's no reason to worry about things. One of two things is true. Either you can do something about it, in which case you should do it, and then you don't need to worry, or you can't do anything about it, so you shouldn't worry about it. <laughs> really simple, right? So, a lot of these things come from thought in one way or another. And there's another source of of fear that I just want to mention. And that is that um, at different times in life, sometimes very strong events have happened to us that we couldn't fully open to at the time. And the emotions and the sensations that were there then, um, because we couldn't, we didn't know how to accept them or feel them, we repressed them. We pushed them down and then the body sensations and the emotions that accompanied them got locked in to our system. They got locked in mentally in the subconscious and they got locked into the very muscles and tensions in the body. So this can come from injury, from accident, from trauma, from abuse. And then we grow up as adults and it's, you know, often have a feeling something's been shadowing us our whole life, but we can't quite put our finger on it. We come into meditation and part of the beauty of awareness is that in the this empty space of awareness, now this material has the, the possibility to emerge. So often people come into retreat, especially a long retreat, and find emotions coming, sensations coming, uh, from long time ago, that have just been held uh, by the body and the mind over sometimes decades. And so fear can be one of those emotions that comes up from that kind of holding. It's not a conscious holding, it's an unconscious holding, uh, as well as a sadness or grief or anger. A lot of things can be held in that way. So sometimes fear is not triggered by thought. It's just released from let's say the subconscious as we relax, open and trust in the unfolding of the moment. There's one other fear I want to mention, a a Dharma fear that comes up. And that is um, sometimes there's a discomfort in opening to what's not familiar. We open to a new place in practice. It could be an experience of a lot of calm, Could be a seeing into impermanence, how things are not lasting very long. And in either of those cases, there can be a feeling, I don't know what to do now. With the calm can be unsettling because it's like, oh, where'd I go? I'm expressing through action, thinking, doing. And when that stops and there's just empty space, oh, where am I? It can be unsettling because the The familiar self doesn't seem to be there, but we just need to trust in that. It's a beautiful opening in meditation. And um, impermanence shows a, um, a groundless quality to our whole experience. That The things we've been counting on aren't as reliable as we'd thought. And so where do we put our trust and our faith then? Well, one of the places we can put it is in the space that opens. The empty space of awareness is basically peaceful and trustworthy. That becomes our refuge. That becomes the reliable place that we can, we can go to. So fear can come up through all these different avenues, all these different entry points. And in a way, it doesn't so much matter what the source is, although it's useful to know, right? What causes a hindrance? Okay. Now I understand. What's most important is how we relate with it once it's arisen. And this is the same whatever the source of the fear has been. We wanna bring the same attitude. So this is the part in the talk that I hope you'll see the similarity to any kind of afflictive emotion that can come. Working with them all is very similar, whether it's fear or grief or longing or anger, you wanna take the same basic approach. basically we need to face our fears and face our difficult emotions really directly we can't overcome fear theoretically doesn't happen like that we need to overcome it through meeting it face to face and finding a new relationship with it can't do it through thinking about it through planning through Theorizing, it needs to be a direct encounter. Fear or any emotion, we need to meet it. So in that sense, finding it arising in a meditation retreat is a great blessing. It's a great opportunity. Because until it arises, we don't have a chance to work, to become free of it. This is true for all the difficult emotions that may come. In the Thai forest tradition, the abbots or teachers would look for places to send monks and nuns so that they would meet their fears. So, Ajahn Mun, who is a Thai master who sort of reestablished the Thai forest tradition in the 19th century, would send his monks out to meditate where tigers had recently been seen. He thought that was the best place. Oh, there was a tiger there? You go meditate there. <laughs> if you're lucky, he'll come back. And so, monks will report hearing the roaring of a tiger nearby in the forests of of Thailand, a hundred years ago. They're not so much there anymore, but a hundred years ago they would. And that would awaken one to the present moment. (laughs) One's mind would not wander far in that situation. And the monks who walked through the forest would often report coming across um, empty robes and an abandoned bowl knowing that one of the monks had wandered by there and died and they wouldn't know the cause of death. It could well have been from a tiger or it could have been from sickness. They they didn't know. But tigers were uh, plentiful back then. So meeting one's fear was considered very uh, fortunate and a good place to practice. Okay, we're not going to send you into the woods at night. (laughs) We're going to trust the mind will bring up what you need to see. But when it comes, it is a good opportunity. And one of the things you first want to look at is, how do you relate to fear when it arises? What's your first response when fear comes? So for me, in the early part of my meditation path, the first response was more fear. I didn't want to feel it. I didn't know how to feel it. It made me very uncomfortable and it scared me. I thought I was going to be overwhelmed by it. It was too too much for me to handle. So this is the kind of response, of course, that leads to a panic attack. The fear comes, it makes us more afraid. That amplifies the fear and then we get more afraid of the amplified fear. So one one of the practitioners who had a lot of work to do with panic attacks in his early years was a young Tibetan Lama named Mingyur Rinpoche. Mingyur Rinpoche is a brilliant teacher and practitioner. I think he's in his late 30s now. And he set off about four and a half years ago on what he called a three-year retreat, wandering in the Himalayas, and he hasn't come back yet. So he's one of those beings who is already very, very well-developed, and he has such a strong calling to develop further that he's been on retreat for the past four and a half years, and we still don't know when he'll be back. So, Mingyur Rinpoche, when he was about 13 years old, entered his first three-year retreat, (laughs) directed by his father. And one of the things he really had to deal with was the frequency of his panic attacks. He said that it came upon him when he thought of going to meditate, because he knew he didn't have anything else to protect him, he would just be there with the fear. So he just had to work with it and his father encouraged him. His father was also a meditation teacher. His father just encouraged him to open to it and make friends with it. And that was the advice he followed and eventually overcame um, that the difficulty. So this is the key teaching in relating with fear, open to it and make friends with it. When fear arises, note that your reaction may be fear but you wanna try and shift into a relationship to it that is allowing and accepting. Often when fear comes, it will encourage you to point your attention to where the fear is pointing. You know, I'm I'm afraid of what's gonna happen next week. I'm afraid of getting old. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of a panic attack. Fear will point you in a bunch of different directions. And normally that's where the mind goes. But in meditation, We don't wanna go where it's pointing. We wanna come right here into the fear. We wanna be with the present moment experience of the fear and not get misled by where the thoughts are directing us. In uh, meditation terms, that being misled is called unwise attention. Unwise attention means placing our attention where it's not going to be helpful. And you'll see this happens with all the afflictive emotions. They tend to lead us to place our attention somewhere it's not helpful, past or future, something situational. The proper place for our attention, the wise attention, is to come into the direct experience in that moment of the emotion, in this case of fear. So we bring our attention fully into the present moment and let ourselves feel the fear, all the time working to open to it with an allowing and accepting attitude. As we start to form a relationship with fear and other difficult emotions we want to look at the fact they are made up of from a meditation point of view three components body sensations mood and thoughts and we need to make our relationship with each of these pieces more or less independently because they're all separate Uh, aspects of the phenomena. So with fear, with all difficult emotions, the best place to start is the body sensation. When fear arises, how does it feel in the body? So bring your attention to that and just feel it. There's a contraction, maybe in the abdomen. The heart rate may increase. Under the arms feel sweaty. There's maybe a lightness or a vibration through the whole body as though you can't find a ground or any place solid to be. Maybe the breathing gets a little rapid and shallow when fear is strong. Let yourself just feel those sensations. They won't be pleasant. And then ask yourself, can I bear them? Okay, can I bear it? What fear is sort of telling you is something bad is about to happen. Meaning something like, you know, maybe you can bear this moment, but in the next moment, something really unbearable is going to happen to you. So that's kind of the tenor of the thinking that's going on, the thoughts that are coming. The sensations, as we land in them, we find out they're bearable. And so even though the thoughts are saying the next moment's not going to be bearable, what we find as we come into the body is this is, this I can bear. It's not pleasant, and at first it may not seem like I can, but I can. I am. I have. I'm doing it. It's happened before. I've gotten through it. I've survived. I've borne born up with these sensations before. So we start to trust, I can bear this. Then we start to examine them and we see they're unpleasant, but I can be with them. This is a huge step, being with the sensations of the difficult emotion. That opens the door for us to accept the experience. Then we look at the mood. This is not so easy to locate, but every emotion has a flavor. A flavor in the mind, you might say. You know, the flavor, let's say you meet an emotion in a dream and you're not so in touch with the body, but you know the flavor of happiness is one way. The flavor of sorrow is another way. The flavor of love, is a different way, and the flavor of fear just in the mind is a different way. So feel what that mood, I'd call that the mood of fear. It's just a mental thing. What's that flavor in the mind? Get familiar with that. It's also not pleasant. You know, when I came to really be able to feel it, feel it clearly, what it seemed to me it was saying was, run away, run away. You know, it's not safe here. Get out, get out. That was what I just tried to relate to and move to accept and allow. And then um, the thoughts start to notice that all the thoughts in some way or another are saying something bad's going to happen or something bad's about to happen. But that's just a figment of our imagination. That's just like looking at the drawing of the tiger and getting worried. It doesn't mean that it's true. So we start to see, I can be with the sensations, I can be with the mood, I can be with the thoughts, all of them are basically okay. So that provides the, the foundation for us to be able to say, okay, let me open to this and really accept it, really accept it. We see that it, um, it goes on for a while and then it passes away. This is really important and really helpful to see any emotion that comes to you during this retreat. It's going to come, it's going to last a while, and it's going to pass away. Have you had any emotions here that have lasted more than about a day? It's rare. I'll put it that way. It's rare. They come, they last a while, they pass away. And we start to see these emotions are just like weather. You know, some clouds come, they cover the sun, then they pass, it's clear again. Rain comes, sprinkles a few drops, seems gloomy, it goes away, clouds are back. Clouds pass, it's nighttime, the stars are out. Emotions are just like that. They come, they cast their influence for a while, and they pass through. They will exhibit their impermanence if we let them, just like everything does. This is why you don't really have to worry about emotions and why you don't have to push them away. By just not doing anything, they're going to go. Now, there is a way that you can make them last longer. Reach out, take a hold of them, tussle about them, think about them, think of all the things that could happen. Why this is such a terrible experience to have on your precious meditation retreat and dwell on that for a long time. (laughs) And then you can extend their life. But if you don't do that, they will come, they will express, and they will pass. They'll all pass if you let them pass. So we start to see that fear doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that something bad's going to happen. Wanting doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that I have to have that or my life will be miserable. Sadness doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that I'm destined to be depressed forever because I lost something. All these emotions are rich. They have their place in human life, but they don't have the meaning we attribute to them when we think that they're so threatening and so difficult. As we start to accommodate the fear, it loses its power over us. And that power is lost through our full acceptance of it I got, I got tested on this because one of my teachers said, if you really accept it, it's okay if it lasts the rest of your life. And so I checked out my fear. I said, would I be okay if this lasted the rest of my life? The answer was really easy. No way. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not. And so I had to live with that for a while. Why not? Why couldn't I let this last the rest of my life? And the answer that came when I looked into it was, I'd lose some of the things I really enjoy. I couldn't open to a sunset the way I had. I couldn't sort of merge with nature the way I did sometimes. I couldn't get so blissed out with music the way I was used to. If fear was, was present, it was, would create a barrier. So I clung on to that for a while. And then the fear continued. And I thought, okay, Do I really want to hold out the possibility of future bliss at the price of present conflict and disturbance of peace? Or could I try giving that up and finding peace now? So I gave that up and I said, okay, if this is going to last the rest of my life, I'm going to be okay with this. And I I found that okayness. I really meant it. And at that point, the fear kind of shrank and almost rotted away. And I could see that in that full acceptance of it, I'd kind of like broken its back. It was my resistance that was continuing to feed it energy and sustain it as such a threatening force. And when I just said, okay, you can have me. Rest of my life, you got it gave up. Just kind of wilted. And then I practiced for quite a while after that and was completely easy about fear. If it came, that was fine. If it didn't come, that was fine. It really didn't matter to me one way or the other. So that kind of equanimity and that kind of openness shifted something fundamentally in my relation to fear. It broke some hold, some grip, that it had had in my mind. And fear has come many times, and I've suffered with it on occasion. But I don't suffer with it for long. Uh, Now, I haven't ended my life yet, so that story could change between (laughs) now and the end. You know, it's not easy getting old and ill and dying. But so far, fear has never had that kind of grip again, although it still lives. You know, fear is a living thing, it still comes sometimes. But I feel very confident in my ability to work with it and open to it when it comes. And I think this is the promise of opening to these emotions. They lose their power to intimidate us. And we get, th- we get this confidence, anything that comes to me, I know how to work with. If you really know to the very bottom how to work with one emotion, you've learned the secret for working with all of them. And so anything that comes, you've got the skill through your practice and through your wisdom, through your awareness, to learn how to open to, work with acceptance and not be overwhelmed by it. You found a refuge through understanding and through mindfulness to create a healthy relationship with any emotion that comes. So this is really, the way now that I kind of understand fearlessness. It's not that fear never arises, but rather there's the confidence that when it arises, one has the capability to work with it. This is from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. True fearlessness is not the absence of fear, but going beyond fear. When we relax with our fear, we find sadness, which is calm and gentle. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. You're willing to open up. You're willing to share your heart with others. So let's just sit for a minute and let the words settle. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. Thank you for listening.